0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about social and health equity with Max Tiako, a student at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery.
1: So Max, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, your family background, um, and your journey here to Yale.
2: Yeah, sure. So I am a third year in the medical school here, um, and my, sort of, my path to medical school was kind of complicated. So I I'm originally from Cameroon, and I moved to the U.S. to go to college about 10 years ago. Uh, And I started, I studied civil and environmental engineering in college. I went to Howard in D.C. Um, But I had actually wanted to study medicine, but then for one reason or another, I felt like it took too long to become a physician. So I was like, oh, I'm going to study something um, where I can get a job after college. Um, hence the civil engineering, but I, I, my senior year, I started thinking about graduate school, and I landed in studying bioengineering, so I went to Georgia Tech, um, and a lot of my work was around medical devices development, um, and while in grad school, I was kind of toying with this idea of, oh, do I want to do an a MD-PhD, or do I want to do a PhD, and my advisor, who was an MD-PhD, kind of helped me figure that out and I decided that I would want to go to medical school and I started applying while I was finishing my thesis at the time and so in between graduate school finishing with my master's and enrolling in medical school I was working as a research assistant in a lab um, another medical devices endeavor I was working in the mechanobiology lab at Vanderbilt um, yeah so that's kind of how I eventually made my way from civil and environmental engineering to medicine, which, like, seemingly are not so connected.
1: And so you you came to Yale. You know, you've been all over the place. You've been to Howard. You've been to Vanderbilt. What attracted you to Yale?
2: So my thing about Yale when I was on the interview trail, um, it—you the you know, we all talk about the Yale system and the ways in which it kind of allows— all of us to tap into whatever our interests are and find the necessary resources uh, and the people to talk to and work with to be able to explore those interests outside of the classroom. And that has been really palpable here. And I've been very much taken advantage of those opportunities um, and the flexibility as well.
1: So tell me more about what those interests are.
2: So uh, for me, it's like I mentioned earlier, I studied civil environmental engineering and I still have an interest in those things, Um, but I've kind of pivoted uh, in the sense that I'm interested in how infrastructure and health interact with one another, sort of like public infrastructure, roads, highways, built housing and such, Um, and how all of that ties to um, social justice in our society so I mentioned earlier I went to Howard for undergrad um, and I felt like at Howard all of us not maybe not all but a lot of us were kind of um, built into mini social justice like warriors you know like the um, the university has a long history of being involved in social justice um, matters especially when it comes to issues that affect the African American community um, so kind of sitting at the intersection of all those things uh it's what i've been doing and with my free time in medical school
1: and so tell me more about that because i mean it's certainly very interesting when we think about social determinants of health um which in part has to do with poverty our neighborhoods lack of you know affordable healthy nutritious foods um safety of neighborhoods um violence in communities, all of these things ultimately have a bearing on our health. Um, and many of them have to do with the public spaces that we inhabit and uh, the infrastructure um, that that's there. So tell us more about um, that work.
2: Yeah. So for me, it's- what I've been doing is kind of looking around here in med school, like who are the people who do work and related to to those different arenas of social determinants of health. And um, I had the opportunity to take the student student led um, elective, which was a U.S. health justice course, and that kind of helped me further dive into these interests. But also starting the podcast Flip the script, um, where I had a chance to I've had a chance to interview. Professors here um, and healthcare workers as well who do work at the intersection of social determinants of health and ultimately health outcomes. So, like a good example is um, the tidbit that I did on incarceration and health, right? So, I, I interviewed um, Dr. Wong. She's a general internal medicine uh, attending here, and she is part of the leadership of this. Network of transitions clinics. So basically, they take care of individuals who have a history of incarceration, and it's been shown so far that um, that contributes to one improving the, their health um, after release from jails, but also reducing recidiv- recidivism rates. Um, so that's one example. And I mean, just kind of looking at New Haven, the way the city is built, that's another way it sh- it sh- it shows. Um, so you know right adjacent to the hospital is like that entrance to the highway and it kind of divides the city into, I won't say two parts, but it's kind of stark, right? Once you cross the MLK streets and on the other side of the hospital, um, it's downtown New Haven, it's nice, there are shops that sell expensive clothing, but on the other side, it's the hill, which is like one of the poorer neighborhoods in the city, um, and primarily inhabited by uh, communities of color, black people. So kind of thinking about how the way the city is designed and what that means for the people who live around here. That's another sort of aspect of things I've been working on.
1: So as you think about the social determinants of health and infrastructure, whether it's incarceration or how a city like New Haven is built, How have you thought about how poverty really plays into that? Because when I think about um, both of those situations, it seems to be a dominant theme that people who are incarcerated, um, not ubiquitously but certainly not uncommonly, have a history of uh, poverty Um, and that socioeconomic status tends to have an overlay with other determinants of health, race, et cetera. But the socioeconomic factors um, often are a driving mechanism. So when you think about provision of health care in incarcerated populations and how that can actually help to reduce recidivism and improve health, maybe it's because those people finally had access to a resource that theretofore were not available to them, in part because of of a lack of resources, a lack of access, and poverty as a whole.
2: Yeah, absolutely, I agree. So, and this is something that comes up a lot in communities of activists, right? When we think about um, neighborhoods or parts of cities that are impoverished, um, where there's also high rates of crime and where um, schools aren't particularly doing too well, um, one of the issues is lack of opportunity, lack of jobs. Um, the businesses that are in those areas are not necessarily thriving. And ultimately, you know, this is an anecdote that people or sort of a joke that people say, like, we want jobs, right? Like, we don't want you to... That, and speaking to the city, like a good example of Chicago, right? When like they're closing all these, all the, like a ton of public schools on the south side, um, but also the city continues to increase budget for policing every year. Um, and one of the responses that activists in the city there have been uh, have been sort of vocal about is the need for more opportunities, like during the summertime, where like crime rates kind of skyrocket, right? Like people need jobs. There ought to be more. More things for people to do to use their time so that they're not then driven um, to engage in other activities that would be nefarious for their health, for their. I don't know, like risk of going to jail or staying in school and whatnot.
1: Right. And so how, you know, in terms of practical advice for a city like New Haven, Mm -hmm. where, as you say, you know, on one part of the city, you have a fairly affluent uh, community and boutique shops and Starbucks and, um, you know, uh, organic grocery stores. And on the other side, you have the lack Of all of that in fact the lack of even grocery stores where you can find fresh produce Um, and so how do you provide a city like New Haven or any other city I would argue with practical advice of how you can change that because it seems to me that it's a bit of a vicious cycle, that you have an impoverished area where businesses um, may not want to set up shop because there is a higher rate of crime, because the population in that area is of lower affluence and therefore less able to purchase goods to provide that business sustainability, and therefore businesses don't go there, and therefore there are no jobs. And so you get into this Vicious cycle. Um, so how do you break the cycle?
2: That's a tough question. Uh, as a person who's like not an expert in city planning, I mean, I think um, w- one of the many ways that cities can attempt to address this is job creating jobs, right? Like sort of investing in creating jobs such that people as you mentioned right like people in neighborhoods that are otherwise impoverished like are then able to um, purchase items like that would be in the store in their neighborhood and then maybe more businesses would be able to um to set up shop and um, the other thing is that i like to think about is how in the, within the context of health is how city governments can collaborate with big healthcare institutions to think about um, those job creations so like healthcare in this country is one fifth or one sixth of the GDP, uh, and it's a growing industry, and it's a space where a lot of jobs can be created. So, like, how does the city of New Haven collaborate with Yale New Haven Health to contribute to increasing rates of job creation, especially for people in the city, and even more for those who are from low income backgrounds, right? And then when I talk about healthcare jobs. I don't necessarily mean, um, you know, like increasing rates of like physicians being hired, but also all types of jobs within the hospital where there could be initiatives. And and I'm sure some exist that um, where the Organization ensures that a lot of the people that they hire are also from those communities that are impoverished.
1: Yeah. No, I think your point is a very good one in terms of trying to have programs in communities by businesses, whether they are large healthcare organizations or others, that really try to engage people, particularly from lower socioeconomic status classes. Um, To be involved uh, and and to gain employment, it's often a, a difficult circumstance because people from those neighborhoods, as you say, tend not to have the educational opportunities that others do. Um, And so as they don't have that education, then they can't get a job. And if they can't get a job, then, you know, all of the other cycles uh, continue. Um, But really, I think your point about Um, empowering those in our community who have the ability to offer, for example, on-the-job training to give people that education, to get people employed, certainly can have a very positive impact on communities. We're going to talk about that and a whole lot more after we take a short break for our Medical Minute.
0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about smoking cessation. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine, but it's a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers and operate on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service clinical practice guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based, and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications for smoking cessation, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Max Tiaco. We're talking about his perspective as a Yale School of Medicine student on social and health justice, particularly given his podcast called Flip the Switch. Before we get into that, though, Max, how did you start that podcast anyways? I mean, where does that idea come from? I'm sure all of us have ideas or things that we're passionate about, but not many people start a podcast.
2: So uh, podcasts are one of, I think, one of the greatest ways of acquiring information now. Um, I am an avid listener of podcasts myself. Um so, And I'm always listening to podcasts, and I thought, oh, I should start one, too, because I spend a lot of time writing. Um, but writing means you also have to do a lot of research um, on things where you're not necessarily a subject matter expert. And so if there's a swath of things that I want to share with the world that I'm not necessarily an expert on, um, a podcast is a good way to go about it, where I interview subject matter experts uh, and the writing piece of my sort of activism remains strictly about things that I feel more, I guess, an expert on.
1: And so how do you go about starting a podcast? I mean, is this something that you did in a home studio? Did you engage resources uh, at Yale? I mean, if somebody wants to start a podcast, is that an easy thing to do? Or is that something that takes a bit of networking to figure out? And, And how do you get a podcast out into the ether so that other people can hear it and uh, benefit from all of the interviews that you do.
2: Right. So I'm really lucky that I'm here at Yale. Um, when I was thinking about this, I talked to a friend and she told me, you know, Yale has a broadcast center uh, and you can go talk to them. Um and I sort of recorded a draft episode of what my podcast might sound like. Um, and I came here <laughs> where we are today. And I spoke with Ryan here at the Yale Broadcast Center. And they told me, you know, you can come here and record uh, or you can record on your own and we'll help you with um, with editing as needed. And also broadcasting because Yale has this sort of like channel on SoundCloud that puts all the podcasts out there. Um, So it's a lot easier for me to record on my own schedule because med school isn't all that flexible, despite the Yale system. So what I did is I bought a microphone, I bought a decent microphone and just plugged it with my computer. And I've reached out to individuals within primarily the Yale community, just because it's easier, I don't have to travel far to reach them, um, whose work I'm, interested in, and, and I I had met some of them through lectures they'd given. Um, some of my previous guests have been, like, my academic advisor, um... And so I just find time and bring my computer and my microphone, usually I either interview them in their office or find like a quiet room in the medical school and do it there. I do a little bit of the sound editing myself um, and then send it to the center, and Ryan posts it for me. So that's kind of my process.
1: Wow. So, I mean, it sounds like that's um, something that that people could do um, and is part of perhaps a burgeoning industry and a new way to get information out. Yep. You know, as we think about, you know, burgeoning Things, uh, Hot topics. One of them is climate change. And I know that you've been interested in looking at climate change, particularly as it affects health. Tell us more about that, because there seems to be uh, a group of uh, individuals uh, who um, don't seem to even believe uh, in climate change and others who really do, but may not understand completely the magnitude of its impact impact not only on the temperature, uh, but also on people's health?
2: Yeah, so nothing about climate change, especially within the context of this podcast. So I was lucky enough to interview two Yale faculty that have been involved in efforts related to disaster relief. Um, so my advisor, Marcelo Nunez-Smith, um, she is originally from the Virgin Islands, um, and she does a lot of work um, in the Eastern Caribbean. And I also talked to Dr. Maria Vasquez, who worked on uh, disaster relief in Puerto Rico. So when I think about uh, climate change, I one of the things that comes up for me, at least, is the increasing number of disasters as we've been seeing in the past few years uh, and what that means for the health of people who lived in regions that are more prone to um, sort of post-disaster effects. So in many ways, not only the uh, damage on infrastructure um, or the sort of rates of infectious diseases that accrue after a disaster, but also ways in which people then face barriers to recover from the disaster and how that... Um, impacts their health. So I could, I'd use a good example, um, thinking about Houston, right? Houston just went through a really bad hurricane. I think it was last year. Um, and I was listening to NPR, I think last week, the the podcast uh, Code Switch. They did this episode where they, they compared the experience of two families in Houston um, after um, the hurricane. And one family is low income the other families wealthy, and sort of thinking about how did they bounce back? And what they find is it's a lot easier for families that are high, of high income to bounce back from a hurricane. The, the federal government provides a lot more aid for them, um, like, you know, not always intentionally, but like if you're a homeowner, FEMA is more likely to give you a loan, and there are programs in place for families like that, whereas low-income families really lose everything after disasters like that. And so, uh, and, and we mentioned earlier, right, how much of the social ultimately impacts health. So that's kind of how I think about it. Not even thinking about the clinical things that do happen in the middle after a disaster, like people lose limbs and, you know, people get cholera, all type, you know, those more clinical things. But thinking about the impact on infrastructure, right, and then the loss that comes after that and almost the sort of inability to recover from the loss um, and then chronic stress, which increases the likelihood of uh, these individuals to develop, you know, worse chronic diseases or just the worsening rates of uh, already existing chronic diseases. That's kind of how I think about this worsening uh, state of climate.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I think that, you know, as we think about climate change in not only does it predispose to uh, a number of natural disasters, and we've seen a number of those, whether it's tornadoes or blizzards in in Arizona, uh, which for the first time we saw this right. past year, um, we we know that uh, this can seriously affect uh, many people in terms of their daily lives. And on top of that, when we think about climate change, um, we think about how that will affect our rivers and streams and oceans, um, much of our wildlife, our food supply, um, and so on. So. And also, you know, in terms of arable land, what are we going to be eating in the next century? Right. <laughs> um, um, so so as we think about that, and, and you could make the argument that uh, a responsible way to improve health is also to think about uh, protecting the environment. And as we had talked about, you know, we know that socioeconomic status is a key determinant of health. Um, and so some have argued that things like the Green New Deal may produce more clean energy jobs. But on the other hand, some would argue that it will actually take jobs, often from people who are at the lowest socioeconomic status, the people who are working in the coal mines, Um And that may be their only source of income because they simply do not have the education to tap into the more technologically advanced uh, jobs that we would foresee um, that are going to be in the clean energy sector. So how do you address that kind of debate?
2: Right. This has come up a lot recently. um, And I'm going to tap into what Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been talking about is that when we think about automation um, and the sort of like increase in green jobs that ultimately reduce the other not so green jobs, um, we often think about it from a sort of scarcity mindset that it's, a uh, you know, you gain these jobs and you lose these. But that's in part because there aren't necessarily policies in place to address um or bridge right the trend the the gap that exists between these two types of I guess sub economies. So a good example is you know so countries where like everyone gets a basic income if you don't have a job right. So if you lose your cold job and the government has enough of a safety net to hold you up while you're engaging in a sort of on the job training. Um, program, then that can contribute to addressing um, that sort of gap, right? Um, And I think part of the proposals that are embedded in the Green New Deal include those things, right? It's sort of like addressing what is the current nature of this country's safety net, um, especially for the communities that are more low income.
1: Well, you know, certainly uh, as we are in a year that is pre-election, many of the candidates are talking about where they come down on providing a living wage. Mm -hmm. So a basic income that every American should be expected to have in order to live on. Now, the Proponents of that argue very much like you do uh, that, you know, that is going to help buoy all ships, raise all boats, Mm -hmm. um, so that uh, people can really have a standard of living that would enable them to access good health care, good nutrition, things that we know are important to health. On the other hand, there are arguments that say, the provision of a living wage has to come from somewhere. Money doesn't fall from the sky. Um, and so where does that come from? Does it come from higher taxation or does it come from taking money out of the healthcare care system? As you mentioned, you know, we spend 18 percent of our GDP on health care and truthfully don't have necessarily the outcomes that many other industrialized countries have uh, that spend far less of their GDP on health care. So how do you feel about that? I mean, it, I know that you uh, uh, like the idea of a living wage, but how would you pay for
2: it? So this is something that I've had to think about a lot. Uh, so when I think about healthcare spending in the United States, it's kind of infuriating, right? We we spend a lot of money, and in comparison to sort of peer countries, um, I'll use France as an example. Um, so, and I, as a caveat, France does spend a lot of money on healthcare, um, sort, but not as much as the United States. It still is a high percentage of their GDP, but when we compare the two healthcare systems. One of the things that we've learned is their healthcare system is quote unquote more effective, more efficient. But they also have, as a society, um, a higher safety net. Um, they spend more on social services, quote unquote. Uh, and the United States, when we, and there's a chart out there, I think it may be from the WHO that sort of compares the healthcare spending and social spending among countries that are um, known to be developed. And what we see is countries that spend more on social services end up spending less on healthcare because if you fix the social, people don't get sick as much or people don't require as much.
0: Max Tiaco is a student at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.